Well, as you may have noticed, uh, it looks like a small forest has cropped up in the church, and uh, that is because we've entered Advent. There are trees everywhere, uh, and we normally don't do this level of decoration for a sermon series, but for Advent, uh, things change. And as we go through Advent, that's just the season where we say we're going to remember the story of Jesus' birth, and we're going to start uh, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew this morning. And uh, we're going to look at Joseph's, or, uh, Jesus' human parents, Freudian slip. We are looking at Joseph. Um, but before we do that, I want to tell you a story about uh, one of the most famous Christian thinkers and writers and authors uh, in the 20th century, a man by the name of C.S. Lewis. And uh, many people don't realize he did not come from a Christian home. In fact, he was not a Christian for uh, the early part of his life. In fact, he was not, never even formally a theologian. He had a day job. So all those books you read of his that are Christian books uh, are stuff he did for fun on the side. Um, but he was a professor of English at Oxford. And before he was a Christian, he was sitting in his office one uh, December day. And a fellow professor came in who was also not a Christian and as they were sitting there together, they heard uh, Christmas carolers out in the courtyard singing uh, Christmas carols and specifically words that contained uh, the theme of Jesus' virgin birth. And C.S. Lewis's fellow professor says to him, isn't it good that we know better than they did? And C.S. Lewis says, what do you mean? He said, uh, well, isn't it good that we know more than they did? And Lewis said, I'm afraid that you'll have to explain yourself. And he said, well, isn't it good that we now know that virgins don't have babies? And C.S. Lewis looked at him and said, don't you think they knew that? I think that's why they're singing about it. (laughs) You see, sometimes when we read these biblical stories, it's very easy to forget that they were humans too. And they lived in a world of uh, you know, scientific discovery and all these other things. And every character in this story knew for a fact that virgins don't have babies. But that's why we write songs. We don't write songs about, uh, and Lewis knew that, and I think eventually, hopefully, his friend realized that, that we don't write songs ordinarily about a woman having a baby in the normal method. You know, there'd be a lot of songs, one for each of us. Uh, but instead... Uh, we write songs, multiple songs, about incredible things when they happen. And what we want to look at today, we're going to look at the story uh, in Matthew chapter 1, which particularly focuses on Joseph, which is interesting, because there's not a lot of focus on Joseph. And to be fair, I think Mary has uh, the harder and more admirable role uh, throughout the story of Christmas. Uh, but this is Joseph's contribution to that story. It's going to be in Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 25, which will be page 807 uh, in your pew Bibles, uh, which is the first page of the New Testament, by the way. So there's uh, not a page number on it, but somebody next to you can help you out if you can't find it. And what we want to look at today is we want to realize that sometimes following after God has a social or sometimes even legal cost to it. And many of us are not willing to pay that. We're not willing to pay the social burden of what it requires to follow God, but to accept the invitation that Christmas offers us, which is following Jesus, 
there are times where we will have to deviate both from the culture that we live in and our religious and moralistic tradition. And so with that in mind, I'm going to uh, open us in prayer and then I will read to you and then we'll get into it. Would you please join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the example of Joseph that you've given us this morning. We thank you for your written word. We pray now that as we open your text, you would open our minds, our ears, our hearts to see and hear and understand and apply that which you are saying to us today. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to go through this passage here. And now how many of you have heard that story before? Okay, a couple people. And so here's the thing. When it's a familiar story, it's really easy to miss obvious points. And so all of this happens and we think, of course it happened that way. That's how it's supposed to happen because we know the story. But there are several unusual features of this text. And I think the first thing that we want to look at right here in the beginning verses, verses 18 and 19, uh, Jesus' birth took place in this way. Uh, Joseph is engaged to Mary and Mary says, hey, I'm pregnant, uh, but don't worry, it's the Holy Spirit's. Now, this story is told from Joseph's perspective. And I think we often, because it's so familiar, we forget how painful this must have been for Joseph. And no matter how much he loves and trusts Mary, he knows what you and I know, what C.S. Lewis and his friend knew, virgins don't have babies. Right? He's pretty certain of that. And so when she tells him this, There has to be this sense in which, and this is the PG version, he's saying, look, no matter how much I love you, no matter how sincere you seem, no matter how honest you've been with me, you have to have done something with someone. That's the PG version. It may have been more explicit. But no matter no matter what she says, no matter how much he loves her, no matter how much he's willing to believe her, he can't possibly believe that this is what she says it is. Because he just knows it can't happen. And so it's interesting to see Joseph's response to this. Now Joseph is described here as being faithful to the law. He shows every mark of religious devotion. Yet he truly loves Mary. 
and does not want to see her publicly shamed. So he's not a vengeful person. So this puts him in a dilemma. In fact, one translator says uh, it should maybe be translated uh, this way, and I actually agree with them, not that my vote counts, but uh, it says, Joseph, although being righteous, yet was not willing to make an example out of Mary. And so he says, you know, that's a better example. First of all, it says, although being righteous. So it's Joseph, we're being told, is a righteous. He's a just person committed to justice, to fairness, to godly living before we even hear this story. So his righteousness is not based on his actions that come in the story. It's already established, and now we get to see it play out. And it says that he's not willing to make an example of her. So you see, you feel Joseph has this deep sense of, I need to do what's right. I need to do what God has commanded. I need to do what is right according to God. And so Joseph's righteousness just pushes him to act faithfully, which by his religious law, the standard of the day was set in Deuteronomy 22, which means that Mary should be publicly exposed as an adulteress She should suffer the punishment of her sins, which in this case is death by stoning, uh, according to Deuteronomy 22. Now, it's worth noting that by the time of the New Testament was written, they weren't really practicing the stoning part of the law uh, as in terms of the punishment, but there was still the shame and the humiliation. And Joseph looks at this and he says, well... I've, I've given my whole life to following after God, doing what he says. This is what it says should happen. Yet, I care about Mary. I don't want to see that happen to her. So what am I to do? And so he says, you know, I'll just divorce her quietly. And at this point, you know, breaking off an engagement where things were that said in that culture, it's still considered a divorce, even though they're not even married yet. But then, verse 20 uh, a messenger from the Lord appears to Joseph and sheds new light on the situation. And it's interesting. Now, one thing to note, as you read Matthew's gospel, it is written with Jewish readers in mind. So, what does that mean? It means there's going to be a lot of Old Testament references. Because a Jewish listener at the time would have known the stories of the Old Testament, and every time Matthew connects that to Jesus... That's a connection for the Jewish audience. Now, Luke is a Gentile writer like us, most of us, uh, and so he doesn't have nearly as much of that, but Matthew's writing for that audience. And so when the angel, the messenger from God, appears to David in, or Joseph in a dream, he says, Joseph, son of David. That's how he addresses him. Now, why would he do that? Was Joseph's father named David? I don't know. But we've established it early in chapter 1 that David, that Joseph is descended from King David. Now, that may not mean much to you, and it may not mean much to uh, you know someone on the street that you would share with after this sermon. But to a first-century Jewish audience, what they were looking for, what they were waiting for, what they're anticipating, is this promise from Second Samuel chapter seven, where God says to David, "I will establish one of your offspring to rule on the throne forever." And so every time some new king comes to Israel, new, new leader, they're like, is he descended from David? Is he, you know, is he going to check all these boxes? Is he going to do all of the things that we're waiting for? And so there's this sense of anticipation that, uh, is, that is summoned just by saying Joseph, son of David, calling our attention to that in the text. And we get our first glimpse of what Jesus came to do. 
says, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So, by the way, not only is David being a- or Joseph being asked to uh, marry a woman who's carrying a kid who isn't his, he doesn't even get the normal fatherhood privilege of having some input on the name. Now, depending on your marriage, that may not be that unusual. But um, usually, you have some say on the child's name, and it's like, nope, not not your kid. You don't get to name him, and guess what? Ultimately, he's going to call the shots. He's going to save you from your sins. So this is quite a bit to, I mean, that's, um, and, and then his, his dream ends. It says, you know, you call him Emmanuel, and they quote from Isaiah 7.14 uh, to show, you know, the virgin birth was prophesied, uh, and, and his name is set, which means God with us, and he's going to take away the sins of people. End of the dream. And then this is the interesting part to me. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and he took his wife. Now, to Joseph's credit, he hears directly from the Lord and then he gets up and does it immediately. Now, most of us come here almost every week and every week, Drew or Daryl or I are up here uh, or Gene are preaching and telling you, you know, what God has asked you to do and how many of you can say that Immediately, it's like you woke from your sleep. You left here and you started doing exactly what God wanted you to do instantly. But that speaks to Joseph's character. It's easier said than done. And once again, this might look like an obvious conclusion uh, to us. But what he's asked to do here actually pulls at two basic impulses for Joseph. It pulls at the cultural force of his day. He has to defy what would be considered normal in his culture to do this. And he has to defy what would be considered normal in his religious tradition. Those are two pretty heavy forces. And so that's where we're going to enter. That's where we can start to learn from Joseph's, Joseph's example here. And there's just two points this morning. And the first one is this. So that following Jesus for us means deviating from the culture. Uh, it's not not always. You know, we talked about last week. Uh, there are good things in every human culture. Uh, but for Joseph, following God meant that he had to deviate from the cultural norms of his day. Now, that might not sound shocking to say that as a Christian, you can't you can't follow secular culture. But most of us don't even realize when we're doing it. Because no one ever has to sit down and explain your culture to you. You just pick it up. It's in the air. It's the water you swim in. And so when you're asked to defy that culture, that's when you notice that you have the culture. And so in the original context, for Joseph, he lives in what's called a shame and honor-based culture. Now, I'm going to give you a 30-second summary, but, I mean, you can even Google that phrase, shame and honor culture. It still exists in the world today, not so much in America. Um, but what this meant was that the ultimate purpose, the driving force in any action or behavior, what deems uh, behavior good or moral or just, is that if it brings honor, not just to you, because your actions aren't primarily about you, they're about your family, about your community. Uh, the people that you associate with, you bring honor to them by doing something honorable. And the worst thing you can do is bring shame Not just to yourself, it's not just about you, but when you experience shame, everyone in your family, everyone in your community has that shame brought upon them. And that's the culture that Joseph lives in. Now, for Joseph to marry a woman who has had a a baby apart from him brings shame on him 
It brings shame on Mary and it brings shame on both of their families. So even by Joseph's decision to say, you know what, I'm going to listen to God and I'm going to marry uh, Mary, means that he is making a sacrifice uh, of tremendous cultural importance. Now, we don't live in a shame and honor culture, but I think Joseph's actions here defy our culture even more than it defies his culture. Because the primary values in our American culture, Western society, are freedom and autonomy. And what Joseph is being asked here is the ultimate price in our culture. He has to give up his freedom in order to be married. Now, everyone has to give up freedom to be married. uh, Because when you commit yourself to someone else, by implication, if you're doing it properly, you're closing all other doors. And you're saying, I'm not... I'm not going to be married to anyone else. I'm going to be married to this one person. And so in a sense, you're giving up some freedom in order to become a fuller version of yourself. But Joseph has to do this even, he's giving up even more freedom because he's he's committing the cultural faux pas as well as uh, the individualistic one. In our society, we have this deeply ingrained belief that the goal of life, how we find our truest sense of purpose, our sense of self, our sense of meaning, is to escape all the boundaries of our life. And Charles Taylor, who I've quoted before, is a Canadian philosopher in the 20th century, and he wrote a, a lengthy book outlining this, but he, he describes this behavior as expressive individualism. And he really draws the line as before World War II and after World War II. And he says, after World War II the focus became expressive individualism. It means you don't turn to your family, your community, other things to find meaning in your life. You retreat into yourself and you go off by yourself, into yourself, and you say, I'm going to find out who I am, what I'm about, and then my only job left is then to express it to the world. And that's that's the narrative that many of us, uh, without even realizing it, find ourselves in because that is in our culture. If you think of, you know, Characters from movies and TV shows, that is constantly what is being uh, reinforced and valued and prized as a heroic uh, story. In the example that I thought of, now I wanted to think of an example that I like so that I'm not just picking on it because it does actually, there are positives and negatives both to shame and honor culture and to individualistic culture. Uh, but how many of you are familiar with the show The Gilmore Girls? Okay, once again... More than I expected. First service really surprised me how many Gilmore Girl fans there were in there. But um, the primary character, which you could debate since it's called Gilmore Girls, but I would say the main character is this character named Lorelai. And Lorelai is fiercely independent. And it's not even very subtle. She works at a place called the Independence Inn. When she was 16, she got pregnant and decided... This is a good time as a 16-year-old who doesn't have a driver's license and is pregnant to go make it on my own. She moves out. She gets a job. And within 10, 15 years, she is running the place and eventually gets her own place. And by all cultural standards, she is she is self-made. She's very successful. She opens her own inn. Her daughter, who she had when she was 16, goes to Yale. Very successful. But the interesting thing about Lorelai is... Her intense commitment to freedom, to personal freedom, to autonomy, actually becomes the largest obstacle to her ultimate happiness. Throughout the seven seasons of the show, she gets engaged three different times. And she t- 
tends to get cold feet. It starts to feel like the walls are closing in on her. And I bring this up as an example because we don't look at Lore- Lorelai's not the villain of the show, right? She's relatable. She's the character we're supposed to be following, be rooting for, and relating to. And it works because we understand that feeling of when you pick one option, all of the other options are off the table, and you're really limiting yourself by committing to something or someone. And uh, she can't find happiness through freedom. Now, we're going to come back to that idea uh, at the end of the sermon, but I just want you to keep that in mind, that those are the cultural forces that would keep us sometimes from following Jesus the way that Joseph does. Uh, when he is called to follow God, he has to defy his own culture, and many of us will have to do the same. But the second thing that I want to point out, the first was that following Jesus means sometimes deviating from your culture. And the second is this, following Jesus sometimes means deviating from moralism, from your religious values. Now, I want to explain this really carefully because there's a lot of ways to misinterpret that. But for Joseph, in his day, to faithfully follow after God, he had to part ways with the moral conventions and religious law of his day. In order to take Mary of his wife, he had to not, you know, publicly stone her. That's a pretty significant barrier to marriage. And it seemed very unnatural to him because he knew the law. He knew what he was supposed to do. He knew what the right action according to God and the religious leaders of his day were. Yet, when God calls him to action, it is something that departs from the conventional religious and moral wisdom of his day. His religious culture would tell him that Mary has wronged him. She has to pay the price and he has to be vindicated. This would mean exposing Mary's alleged unrighteousness and making a display of his own righteousness by carrying out the law. Because that's what it says. When you say, uh, I'm divorcing her because she has committed adultery, that's pulling her down, you know, 100 morality points and boosting yourself 10 for calling her out on it. And that's making a, a display of how religious, how righteous you are. But that's not what Joseph does, especially as he follows after God. And it's interesting that even before the visit from, uh, you know, the Lord's messenger, Joseph refused to do that. He said, I'm not going to expose her to public shame. I don't want to do that, even though I'm a righteous person and I follow the law. Because Joseph understood something very important, which is this. Following after God is a lot more complicated than checking boxes. Following after God is a lot more complicated than checking the right boxes and maintaining a good moral record. He is called righteous because he knows the law of God, but more importantly, he is aligned with the intent of the law, which uh, Jesus summarizes for us later in his life as love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't seek to destroy Mary or her reputation or her life for his own moral gain because At this point, he still had nothing to lose. He'd been personally hurt and wounded, and he could hurt her back. In fact, he could do it tenfold, because he could walk away with no responsibility and be deemed righteous in the eyes of religion for his behavior. Now, for us, even the most faithful Christians can become tempted to turn our beliefs into a strict set, you know, that checklist of righteousness. This, this dogma of good religious performance and behavior because it comforts us. It feels really good 
to be able to check those boxes and put your head on your pillow at the end of the day and say, I know that I'm a good person because I performed morally. I did the right things all day long, every day this week. Wouldn't that feel nice? But that isn't actually what Christianity offers us. It's not the invitation that Jesus has extended to us this morning. And the, the goal here, the invitation in this story is to move past religious performance into what it means to truly follow Jesus. Now, I don't think this is going to be news to anyone, but religious moralism still exists today. Is anyone surprised by that news? Now, uh, the New York uh, Manhattan pastor, Tim Keller, he defines what it looks like for us today. He says it this way. Moralism is the view that you are acceptable to God, the world, others, and yourself through your attainments. Moralists do not have to be but uh, religious, but often are. When they are, their religion is pretty conservative and filled with rules. Sometimes moralists have a view of God as very holy and just. This view will either lead to A, self-hatred, because you can't live up to the standards, or B, self-inflation, because they think they have lived up to those standards. Moralistic people can be deeply religious, but there is no transforming joy or power. End quote. And so... What Tim Keller is saying is that you can be really religious. And by that, he doesn't mean like a good person who shows up to church and follows after Jesus and tithes. And I mean, you know, those are all wonderful things. We actually encourage all of those things. But there's no transforming joy in and of those things by themselves. Apart from an actual relationship and encounter with God, there's no transforming power in our lives. And that is what fuels the other behavior, not... Uh, the checklist to feel like you're a good person. And so in order to follow God, Joseph had to part ways with both the cultural expectations of his day and actually the cultural expectations of our day and the religious tradition of his belief system. Uh, That's a lot. For most of us, if we have to part with the culture, we're comforted, comforted in doing it because we get to side with our religious tradition. And sometimes when we want to part with our religious tradition, we feel comforted because we're siding with the culture. Joseph has to part ways with both. That's a, that's what you call a blind leap of faith. Saying, my religious peers will not welcome me for this behavior. My cultural peers will not welcome me for this behavior. I, the only reason to do what he does is to follow after God because God has asked him to do it. And so, now here's the best thing about this story. If you listen to this story, if you read the story and you admire Joseph at all, if you look at this and you say, wow, Joseph is a really great guy. He's willing to suffer Mary's shame so that she doesn't have to. And if that really stands out to you, you're going to love how this book ends. Because if in chapter one, one person taking on another person's shame to, to bring them honor and, and glory really appeals to you, wait till you see what their son does. That's one person taking on shame and humiliation and sin and brokenness and rebellion for the entire world. So as admirable as Joseph is here, this is just a little shadow of what's coming later in the book. And as I talked about earlier, the main thing for our culture for most of us, that stops us from accepting this invitation is our culture's love of freedom and autonomy. We assume at some level 
And, and you can feel this when you have to make difficult decisions in life. But you assume, many of us, that there's no way that joy and loss of freedom could ever go together. There's no way that joy could be the result of me voluntarily giving up some of my freedom, some of my autonomy. But that's, it's not true, and it's not what we see here, and it's not what we see throughout the Bible, and it's not, not actually what we even see throughout history, but it is a deeply held belief in our culture that many of us believe without even realizing it. And it's interesting that this dilemma this morning is set in the context of marriage, because it, marriage is a perfect illustration of this. The best marriages aren't ones where everything is carefully delegated and balanced partnerships where you do these things and I'll do these things and everything's even and fair. Uh, the best marriages are the ones where each person dies to themselves in order to become themselves. And that's giving up significant freedom. That's giving up a lot of freedom, but that is the only way to find true meaning, uh, both in your marriage but also now in your your walk with God. That's what we see here. You give up freedom, but in that giving up voluntary surrender of some of your freedom, some of your autonomy, you find true meaning. You have access to true joy and transforming joy and power. And so this morning, our invitation that God is offering is to come and see what he is doing in the world and trust where he follows or trust where he leads and follow after him. So the only question for you this morning is, are you ready to give yourself to the work that he is doing through us and in us? Would you please join me in prayer?